0: This is Reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Phyllis Schlafly, Part 2. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Harry Truman left office in 1952 as one of the most unpopular presidents in U.S. history. It wasn't entirely his fault. Strikes led to massive upheavals in industry, the post-war economy lacked the boost of military spending, there were housing and consumer goods shortages across the country, and a powerful congressional coalition of Republicans and Dixiecrats kept him from passing any meaningful legislation. Republicans knew a big win was on the horizon, and they were right. Dwight D. Eisenhower mopped the floor with his Democratic opponent Adlai Stevenson and became the first Republican president in 20 years. Naturally, Republicans knew that a strong candidate at the top of the ticket was good news for down-ballot candidates, and that congressional wins were possible even in Democratic strongholds. So one night in early 1952, the Madison County Republican Party chairman came knocking on the Schlafly's door. The Democratic incumbent Melvin Price was very popular in the district, but with Eisenhower running, the Republicans were convinced that the right candidate might be able to defeat him. And they thought Fred Schlafly was just the man for the job. The only problem was that Fred had no interest in running. He didn't even entertain the idea. It was an immediate and firm no. He was far too busy with his law practice and was more interested in advocacy and research than legislating. The chairman was very distressed. There wasn't much time left, and he didn't have any other strong candidates to put forward. Then an interesting idea bubbled up. What about Phyllis? At the time, she and Fred only had one child, and she was one of the most prominent civic leaders in Alton. Phyllis was the director of the YWCA, a captain of the community chess drive, active in the League of Women Voters, president of the Radcliffe Club of St. Louis, a fundraiser for the St. Louis Symphony, and a director of the local chapter of the National Conference of Christians and Jews. She was a commentator on their weekly radio broadcast, and she also wrote papers on housing issues for the Citizens Housing Council and gave speeches on everything from financial planning to the communist threat. As a fellow YWCA director said years later, Phyllis then was exactly like Phyllis now. She didn't just do one thing like most of us. She did 14, and she did them all well. So, Phyllis decided to run. From the very beginning, it was a long shot. Phyllis was a graduate of an elite master's program, a Republican debutante in a blue-collar, solidly Democratic district facing a hugely popular incumbent. The district hadn't elected a Republican since 1932. But she loved a challenge, especially when it came to competing against men. Her primary opponent, a lawyer from the more populous St. Clair County, had the full force of his county's Republicans behind him. When she beat him in a landslide by a margin of 4 to 1, Phyllis sent shockwaves through the district. The morning after her primary win, the St. Louis Globe Democrat called her a powder puff candidate, an attractive Alton housewife, and political science deluxe. The story featured a photo of Phyllis in a frilly apron frying eggs with the caption, Mrs. Phyllis Schlafly cooks her husband's breakfast Wednesday morning after winning the nomination. She doesn't let political successes interfere with her wifely duties. Where some might have taken offense, for Phyllis, her ability to balance politics and family was a point of pride. Phyllis's run was rife with sexism. When reporting on her campaign, news outlets focused on her looks and her homemaking obligations. She wasn't just a strong candidate lobbing attacks at Truman's administration or the corruption and communist sympathies of the Democrats. She was the good-looking blonde candidate and the Alton housewife and the powder puff candidate. She does all her own shopping, most of the housework, she enjoys cooking. Her culinary specialty is apple cobbler, but she seldom tries her hand at needlework, wrote the women's editor of the Post-Dispatch. That's right. Phyllis Schlafly's campaign was largely covered by the women's editor, while the male political editor covered her opponent, Melvin Price. But Phyllis wasn't at all deterred. She even challenged her opponent to a debate, where she shocked the audience by talking about tactics for winning and ending the Korean War while simultaneously having the audacity to be a young woman. Blockade the coast of China, bomb the bridges over the Yalu River, these were the routes used by communists to travel south to attack American forces and make up the gap between U.S. and Russian military equipment and training. If the Truman administration had fought the Chinese communists as hard as it is fighting the steel industry, the war in Korea would have been over long ago, she told a crowd. While Phyllis campaigned a great deal on balanced budgets and tax-and-spend Democrats, it was obvious that communism was nearest and dearest to her heart. Not just communism abroad, in China and Russia, but here at home. Reds had infiltrated the highest levels of government. New Deal Democrats sent atomic bomb materials and schematics to communist regimes. Feds were using brainwashing techniques developed by Chinese communists to turn conquered peoples into anti-freedom automatons. But it turned out that the voters of Madison and St. Clair counties didn't care that much about the red threat. They cared about industry and unions. Schlafly lost the district, including her hometown of Alton, two to one. But this was probably the inevitable outcome. Eisenhower lost the area by the same margin. They could have drawn a mustache on an empty mop bucket, and it would have won the election so long as it had a D next to its name. A few days after the election, a reporter asked, Did you lose because your name is Phyllis, not Philip? Her reply is very telling. No. No. I lost because I ran in the 24th district and I'm a Republican, not a Democrat. It's as simple as that. My sex had nothing to do with it. Oh, sure, there were people who voted against me solely because I am a woman. But then there were people who voted for me for the same reason. It all evened out in the end. Phyllis Schlafly made a lot of very absurd claims in her long life. But this one stands out to me as especially ridiculous. The idea that just as many people voted for her because she was a woman as those who voted against her on her sex alone is as believable as the United States using Chinese brainwashing technology to beat the freedom out of those we conquer. No, Phyllis Schlafly didn't lose just because she was a woman, on that she is correct. But to argue that it played no role whatsoever is just bizarre, purely ideological, totally outside the realm of the facts in 1952. And yet, Melvin Price had very fond memories of her run. Years later, he said of the 1952 election, It was the most spirited of any. There was nothing dirty about it. It was really a most intellectual campaign, a nationally-oriented issues campaign. It was like she was running for national, or at least statewide, office. She was clearly knowledgeable about the national scene. Trouble was, the voters weren't. The voters were interested in what was happening on the Mississippi River in Madison and St. Clair counties, not on the Yalu River in North Korea. The year she ran for a seat in the House of Representatives was also the year of Schlafly's first Republican National Convention though certainly not the last. She was a total convention nerd. They were her version of the Super Bowl, and after 1952, she never missed one as long as she lived. But in 1964, after attending three conventions, Phyllis decided that something was rotten in the state of Denmark. The RNC selections going as far back as 1936 were, to Phyllis, so out of sync with grassroots Republican voters that someone else must be selecting them. Who, you might ask? a cabal of wealthy East Coast elites who would only allow Republican candidates who suited their pro-communist, internationalist agenda to run. She called these men the kingmakers, the most powerful opinion makers in the world, and they had such a stranglehold over the political system that no candidate could ever make it on the ballot without their sanction. So who exactly are these kingmakers? One of them is our old friend Thomas Lamont, senior partner at J.P. Morgan who worked with a ring of prominent financiers and industrialists to handpick the Republican who would run against FDR in his second term. They picked pro-New Deal Alf Landon, governor of Kansas, who stood no chance to win. He shouldn't feel too bad, though. No one stood a chance to beat FDR. But in the years to come, plenty of conservative politicians with a real chance to beat the Democrats on the ballot would come and go, each of them buried by the Kingmakers who wielded their power to pick and choose their own loyal opposition. In 1960, Republicans were faced with a choice between Richard Nixon and Barry Goldwater. Goldwater was the more conservative of the two by far, and he lost to Nixon in a landslide. Phyllis would chalk this up to Nixon's capitulation to the East Coast Kingmakers, yet another RNC that was stolen from the grassroots before voting had even begun. She was so pissed off about it that she wrote a book. A Choice, Not an Echo, that catapulted her into the spotlight of American politics in a way that would last until her death. She wrote the book in consultation with Rear Admiral Chester Ward, just the first of many fruitful collaborations between the two. A Choice was a love letter to Goldwater and his brand of fiercely anti-communist politics and his hawkish foreign policy. The book goes one by one through each election since 1936, demonstrating exactly how the kingmakers undermine the issues Republican voters care about and select candidates that will be amenable to their pro-communist agenda. That's right. Thomas Lamont and Nelson Rockefeller and Robert McNamara all wanted to turn America into a communist dictatorship where all Americans would live on the dole and we would cease to be a world power. That's what they wanted. The book, whose cover featured a very pretty, smiling, and disarming Phyllis, was a runaway success. Phyllis didn't bother trying to find a publisher. She published and distributed it herself. This is where Phyllis really got her sea legs and built a grassroots infrastructure that would allow her and her devout followers to win future campaigns, especially her opposition to the ERA. A Choice Not an Echo sold over 3 million copies. She did not place any ads for the book or contact any bookstore buyers. The sum total of advertising was word of mouth and a wide-reaching distribution network consisting solely of party activists. Doing the whole thing solo was a huge benefit to the book's success. Speed was the name of the game. Phyllis wrote the book in January and February of 1964, sent it to the printer in March, and by April there were finished copies ready to distribute. With three months before the nominating convention and six months before the general election, there simply wasn't time to go through a publisher. As Phyllis put it, the book would have been worthless if it hadn't been printed immediately. Phyllis often bypassed the standard, institutional ways of doing things, and that was a huge part of her efficacy. It's more work to do everything yourself, that's for sure, but it also means never having to bend the knee or sacrifice your goals to fit the script of bureaucratic, often corrupt institutions. A Choice Not an Echo broke with a lot of standards in publishing. It was a very unique book. At a time when most books, except dime novels, were published first in hardback, Phyllis wanted the book to be paperback only for two reasons. It needed to be cheap, and it needed to be portable. Ladies needed to be able to fit it in their pocketbooks and men in their briefcases. In fact, it's less a book and more of a long pamphlet. Her biographer Carol Felsenthal compares it to Thomas Paine's Common Sense in both the publication style and the urgent populist messaging. A choice wasn't written with the intent of getting on the New York Times bestsellers list or winning any literary prizes. It was written to change hearts and minds, and to change them now. To do that, it needed to speak in simple, plain language and to move people to action. Which is exactly what it did. The press almost universally panned a choice. Publishing magnate William Randolph Hearst Jr. called it a book of fantastic political indictments and a monotonous reintegration of purported conspiracies. Other journalists across the political spectrum damned the book for containing outright lies and dangerous far-right rhetoric which is largely true, having read the book myself. Who could possibly believe that powerful financiers and industrialists want to install communism in the United States? To call a choice light on evidence is the understatement of the 1960s, but that didn't stop it from being wildly popular among the right flank of the Republican Party. It's important to understand the growing divergence within the Republican Party in the post-war era. There was an intellectual, moderate elite that largely ran the party and handpicked candidates — Phyllis was right about that — and an emergent populist movement that was rapidly anti-New Deal, anti-communism, and pro-America first. I'm not talking about the nascent fascist movements that we saw in the Business Plot series. These were average, middle-class people working average jobs and raising families who could care less about overthrowing the government or wearing matching shirts. They had a decidedly libertarian streak, and the thing that they had most in common was a Cold Warrior mentality that put the Soviet Union at the top of its list of enemies. Phyllis Schlafly was one of the first and, no doubt, the most effective party activists who reached out to this disaffected contingent of Republicans in a serious way. Schlafly didn't seek power or glory, at least not within the elite political class. She was pure ideologue, Not that we can pretend to know her motives. Schlafly's political opponents were often convinced that she was a total fraud, that she had built an entire cult of personality that had nothing to do with truly held beliefs. And who can say? Ostensibly, at least, Phyllis's only real motivation was to build up a powerful, grassroots movement that would put true conservatives in power. It's worth taking a minute to talk about this word that gets thrown around in politics a lot, often with no real substance behind it Grassroots. Grassroots refers to a political movement that grows from the ground up, composed of local activists acting outside of traditional institutions. Decision making is often bottom up instead of top down, and there might be leaders, but they don't wield power through party loyalty or even expertise. They inspire people rather than ordering them about. Support for Senator Bernie Sanders' run for president is often described as grassroots, and I would argue that support for Donald Trump was also largely grassroots. But one of the earliest mass, successful grassroots campaigns was the one that won Barry Goldwater the Republican nomination in 1964. It's impossible to overestimate Phyllis Schlafly's role in that grassroots movement. Although she didn't get nearly enough recognition at the time— Goldwater sort of snubbed her after winning, which she didn't take personally at all. In hindsight, it's obvious what a potent force she was. A choice was arguably the biggest factor that led to Goldwater's win in the California primary, where local activists would buy a box of 100 books for $10, with their own money, from a pro-Goldwater distributor, take them to their various precincts, and pass them out to known Republicans. They distributed 50,000 copies like this, and in the precincts where they were most active, Goldwater won by small margins. Before the primary, governor of New York and kingmaker favorite Nelson Rockefeller was considered the easy win. But California pushed Goldwater past the finish line. So-called liberal Republicans, the minions of the kingmakers, were horrified. He had just voted against the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which made him very unpopular among moderate and liberal Republicans and Goldwater's rhetoric against the USSR sounded likely to cause a nuclear war. Goldwater's opponent, Lyndon B. Johnson, ran against his hawkishness with the very famous Daisy ad, in which a little girl plucking petals from a daisy is juxtaposed with a nuclear explosion. One, two, three, four, five, seven. Six, six, eight, nine, one, ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live are to go into the dark. We must either love each other, or we must die. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. It was an incredibly powerful ad. Nothing like it had ever been seen before in a political campaign. LBJ basically invented going negative. But no matter. As Schlafly said in an interview with a reporter for the St. Louis Globe Democrat, Goldwater's opponent Lyndon Johnson was extremely weak and handily beatable. Except he wasn't. Goldwater lost in a landslide, carrying only six states, all in the Deep South, save for his home state of Arizona. And here we see how the civil rights movement radically transformed the geography of Republican and Democratic voters, a trend which had been in motion since the end of World War II. From 1964 and onward, it would become more and more difficult for Democrats to compete in the Deep South, and for Republicans to compete anywhere else. Win or lose, Goldwater was the beginning of a massive shift in the Republican Party. And Phyllis Schlafly was right there at the heart of it. She blamed Goldwater's loss on liberal Republicans who refused to accept the choice of grassroots voters, who either stayed home or voted for LBJ. Like spoiled children, they took their marbles and went home, she said. But for all her efforts and her loyalty, Goldwater didn't even mention her in his memoirs. Her name wasn't even in the index. Win or lose, Recognition or no, A Choice and Goldwater were Phyllis's jumping-off point in the world of grassroots political organizing. Her next big battle would be over a different presidency, the 1967 race for president of the National Federation of Republican Women. This was the auxiliary force of the RNC. Women did a lot, if not most, of the day-to-day organizing for Republican candidates running for office. They rang doorbells, licked envelopes, served refreshments at political rallies, and handled the tedium of running campaigns. President of the NFRW may have seemed like a fairly anodyne position, and usually it was. But after the Goldwater incident, RNC leadership was spooked by Schlafly's run. Having served eight years as the president of the Illinois Federation of Republican Women and then winning the vice presidency of the national organization unanimously in 1965, she was without a doubt in line for the presidency. But the Kingmakers, the moderate Republican establishment, were, frankly, scared of her. They had seen the raw power she exerted in the Goldwater bid and knew she could wield that power to elect other ultra-conservative candidates. She might very well write another book for the 1968 election that would prop up such radical candidates as Egad, Ronald Reagan. The RNC wanted someone more moderate to lead the lady branch of the party, and they put their considerable resources to work getting mild-mannered Gladys O'Donnell elected to the position. Ash Lafley put it, The men in the Republican National Committee know they can control Gladys O'Donnell, and they know that they can't control me. The shenanigans orchestrated to keep Schlafly out of the seat started early. The NFRW always alternated meetings between the East and West, and in 1967 the meeting was set to be in Los Angeles. By rights, this should have been Gladys O'Donnell country, her being from Orange County. But Phyllis had a big following there, and a choice had hit that area hard. In the lead-up to the NFRW election, Phyllis was giving talks in Southern California to huge crowds. So, the Federation board voted to move the meeting to Washington, D.C., home to liberal and moderate Republicans, where Schlafly had few friends. She said at the time, Men don't have enough respect for the women of the Federation to let them choose their own leaders. One of the very few times that Phyllis framed power struggles as gendered. But, classic Phyllis, she would not be deterred. She traveled all over the country giving speeches, and had built a strong base of support among average NFRW women, most of whom were more inclined to support her over O'Donnell. She was incredibly popular, and although the nominating committee had snubbed her, Phyllis was counting on a floor nomination followed by a vote that would bring her the win. Then, just weeks before the election, Goldwater himself sent a letter to the outgoing NFRW president Dorothy Elston that tried to calm the storms happening within the organization. He praised both Schlafly and O'Donnell, which seems to me a real slap in the face to Phyllis, but I guess it's better than nothing. And Elston released the letter, but not before she took out all the bits praising Phyllis. Little did she know that Goldwater had sent Phyllis the letter too, who then released the full thing to the press. But perhaps Phyllis's fiercest detractor was her neighbor, Gladys Levis. The feud between the two of them absolutely rocked the Alton-Illinois Republican women activist scene. The Alton District Women's Republican Club and the neighboring Godfrey Women's Republican Club backed Schlafly for the presidency, while Gladys Levis and her friends broke away from the club and started their own, the Alton League of Republican Women. In a letter, Levis explained the rift. Mrs. O'Donnell has a constructive philosophy while her opponent is an exponent of extreme right-wing philosophy, a propagandist who deals in emotion and personalities where it is not necessary to establish facts or to prove charges. It is necessary only to make them in a style so sweeping that it triggers the adrenaline and blanks the need to think. The membership of the NFRW wants a choice, not an echo of a disaster they would like to forget. Very spicy. In the 1960s, and especially within the Republican Party, women were expected to take their direction from male leadership, to be seen and not heard, to lick their envelopes and serve their lemonade and convince their parish to go to the ballot box. Men and women alike accused Schlafly of tearing the party apart with her dogged conservatism. As the NFRW public relations director told Phyllis, men in the party think we women are stupid enough as it is without this. And here we have the great irony of Phyllis Schlafly and what makes her such a compelling historical figure. For all of her regressive gender politics and opposition to feminist movement, she was just about the only truly independently-minded woman to be found in the 1960s Republican Party. She fought tooth and nail against the men in party leadership in her crusade to save the nuclear family and conservative values. As she told a reporter for the Washington Post, the more we let women's voices in politics, the better off we are women should have a role beyond stuffing envelopes and stirring coffee. Phyllis's six children had always been an important part of her public persona. But now, in the race for NFRW president, her family was being thrown back in her face. The outgoing president, Dorothy Elston, told reporters, I don't think it's right that a woman with responsibilities to husband and children should be running for the federation presidency. It was expected that women with children in the home would play a smaller role in party activism, while older women who no longer had a family to care for would take on the more strenuous positions. As the Alton Telegraph wrote at the time, the candidacy of Mrs. Phyllis Schlafly may be affected more by the fact that she has a large family than by her ultra-conservative tendencies. And that's when a brand-new rule cropped up in the NFRW the president had to be willing to live in Washington, D.C. in an apartment provided by the Federation, a perfect setup for an elderly woman living alone and an impossible one for a wife and mother of six school-aged children. And with that, the race became one based not just on political differences, conservative versus moderate, but a generational battle between young and old. Federation elections were historically a very muted affair. Elections weren't really contested. Prim and proper Republican ladies quietly lined up to cast their predetermined ballots before retiring for tea and lemon bars. 1,500 or so women from the clubs that were able to pay for the trip would come in wide-brimmed hats and white gloves to do their duty as the auxiliary force of the Republican Party. Not so in 1967. 5,000 delegates and alternates showed up in Washington, D.C., and the majority of them had showed up to cast a ballot for Phyllis. They packed the hotel, and the usually harmonious affair was instead full of hissing and bickering, even brawling and fainting. At the credential committee hearing for the convention, Schlafly claimed that one of her delegates had fainted and was tossed out of the room while still unconscious. The credential committee hearing room was definitely the hot spot of activity. The committee was charged with determining who could and couldn't vote, and Schlafly and her supporters claimed there was blatant bias. Her delegates were being thrown out, while O'Donnell's were easily passing through the process. In an unair conditioned corridor, Schlafly delegates waited 8, 10, 12 hours to go before the committee. One delegate, who had traveled from Laguna Beach, California, left for home, furious. "'I didn't come here to sit in a hallway. They treat you like animals waiting for slaughter.' There were charges that O'Donnell voters were bussed in, bypassing the credential committee, given badges and told exactly how to vote, herded to the ballot boxes, and put back on buses without ever having to actually participate in the convention. Schlafly claimed there were at least 400 of them. Hold on to that number. By election day, things had reached a fever pitch. Phyllis was denied the opportunity to speak before the convention, and her supporters shouted down the speakers and demanded to be heard. At one point, the very frail President Elston was trying to present an award to the woman who had recruited the most new members to the Federation. A Schlafly supporter had jumped up on top of the press table, screaming in President Elston's face, Madam Chairman! Madam Chairman! The President mistook her for the rightful award recipient, which led to a scuffle right there on top of the press table in front of the stage. Just before the vote was announced, Schlafly supporters filed a protest with the convention that there were irregularities in the voting machines. Schlafly's security men hadn't even been allowed to test the ballot counters. The board of directors struck down the filing, determining the election legitimate. But five years later, a federation officer with a long history of party activism was approached by a man at a Republican reception in D.C. I just had to tell you, it's been on my conscience all these years. I was the one who fixed the voting machines used by the Ohio delegates in order to switch votes away from Mrs. Schlafly and to the other candidate at that women's convention in 1967. The man then disappeared into the crowd. Ohio had been Schlafly's biggest voting block, and while the NFRW officer had been neutral in the election, she was totally shocked by the man's admission. She later said, Phyllis was not being as paranoid as everyone had thought, and I learned of even more dirty dealing, including the busing there is absolutely no doubt that but for the tampering, Schlafly would have won that election. But she didn't. The final tally was 1,494 to 1,910. Gladys O'Donnell took the presidency with just over 400 votes. After the tally, Schlafly walked on stage, shook the new president's hand, flashed her famous Schlafly smile, and promptly left the ballroom, taking her 3,000 delegates with her. The incident left the NFRW weak. One past federation president estimated that about 180,000 women left the organization in the years following the election. Today, it seems like little more than a Facebook page and biennial conference touting tens of thousands of members. What had once been a powerful force in Republican Party politics, with half a million women dutifully getting moderate Republican men into office, was a shell of its former self. Phyllis was one of those women who cut ties with the organization. She and her 3,000 supporters went home to their families feeling disaffected and abandoned by the party that they had given so much of their lives to. It was then that Phyllis decided she needed to take a step back from the party and devote more of her time to raising her children and keeping house for her husband. It was maybe time to retire from politics. Just kidding. Phyllis Schlafly did go home to her husband and her children, but never the type to take a little me time, do some self-care, have a nice bath, and read a romance novel. She began her next ambitious project. In August of 1967, Schlafly launched Volume 1, Number 1 of the Phyllis Schlafly Report. This newsletter was published every month until her death in 2016. This was the tool she would use to build a grassroots empire. By pushing her out of the official party apparatus, The NFRW and the Republican Party Boys' Club had forced Phyllis to become an outsider, which just so happened to be where she thrived best. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it. And consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reaction podcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates, and send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is written and produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.